people seek to feel better about ourselves, um, to gain position, praise from people, power, acceptance. Sometimes our involvement in, in service, even at church, can be motivated by wrong reasons, right? For acceptance from others, for feelings of significance, um, for control, um, for praise, for prestige. Um, and we see that so much in our passage this morning as we look at Jesus Christ as he interacted with his 12 disciples, his 12 apostles. If you have your Bibles open, let's look at Mark 10, verses 32 through 45. I want to look at 32 through 34 first. And Jesus is telling uh, the disciples about his coming death in Jerusalem. And, and we know at least three times in the book of Mark that Jesus has told his disciples that they were headed to Jerusalem and that his death is soon. He says, on the way to Jerusalem, Christ took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. Son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. And in verse 35, then, then, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, uh, Teacher, we want you to do something, whatever we ask of you. He said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us, permit us, one to sit on your right side, your right hand, and the other on your left hand in your glory. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I experience? And their response was, we're able. Then Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I experience. But to sit at my right hand that my left hand is not given to me, it's for those for whom it's prepared. When the other ten heard this, they became angry. They were furious with James and with John. Jesus said to them, You know those who recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those in high positions used their authority over them. But it's not this way among you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus had 12 apostles. Some we know things about, some we don't know very much about. We know, Matthew, that tax collector. We know Doubting Thomas, Judas, we we'll go down the line. But the big three among those 12 were the brothers, James, John, and Simon and Peter. James and 
John and Peter were the three at the Transfiguration, if you remember. They were the three who were with Jesus at Gethsemane. And all three of them, Peter, James, and John, were pretty emotionally intense people, right? Um, Peter was always kind of going off, saying things he shouldn't say sometimes. Um, sometimes they were foolish. Um, he was the one, if you remember, who cut off the ear of the man in Gethsemane. Um, and Jesus called James and John sons of thunder. So they must have been pretty hot-headed people, right? But of the three, Peter was probably by far the natural leader. He was always the first to speak, always the first to act. Um, Peter was sometimes right, sometimes wrong, but never uncertain. James and John were not content to let Peter run off with this leadership part. So what do we know about James and John, that they would ask a question of Jesus like that? Well, we know they came from a well-to-do family. They grew up in a, in a fishing family. Um, and we know just in the Gospels that we see them working with their nets and with their boats and the hired hands. And you can kind of tell they probably were used to giving orders people. And they left a respectable family and, 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 and respectable living to become disciples of Jesus Christ. It wasn't too long that their mother, Shalom, also became a devout believer of Jesus Christ. We may see where they get their um, attitudes from, from their mom, because in Matthew 20, 20, she's recorded as asking a similar question for her two sons. She says to Jesus, she says, In your kingdom, let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right, one on your left. And she was a devout believer who loved the Lord. She was among the women. If you remember the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, she was there serving Christ and being with him. Yet, she felt comfortable asking for this favor of her sons. In our passage today, James and John pull Jesus off to the side. They said, Teacher, we, we want you to, to do whatever we ask of you. It, it, it kind of reminded me of if you have kids, have your kids ever have pulled you aside and said, Dad, Mom, do what, I, will you, do what I ask you to do? I see some head shaking, yes. And that's kind of the way they were. We, we, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to him, Well, what is it you want me to do? And they said, let us, let us sit one at your right hand and one at the left in your glory. Of course, the right hand and the left hand, those were uh, places where the, the king seated his favorites. The right and the left, those were power positions. If you think back over the years, if you've looked at news, if you watched the news, all the presidents of the United States, I don't care who it is, you, you find when they have a conference, typically you got the Democratic leaders, the top ones on one side, you have the Republicans on the other side. And as you go down the line, there's less and less of power. Okay? Those positions next to the president, whoever he is, those are powerful positions. James and John and their mother were asking for those positions of power. But what about Peter? He was one of those top three. He was among those most intimate, 
among the three, and yet James and John were kind of willing to, to ask Jesus to push Peter aside. So it, instead of being the, the, the three, it'd be just the two. Two. Grant us. Grant us to sit. One at your right hand and one at your left. James and John obviously had not been listening to, to, to Jesus because, as I mentioned earlier, he had just for the third time, at least, recorded in, in the Gospel of Mark, he had just told him for the third time that he was going to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. James and John, they did what sometimes we do. They let it go in one ear, come out the other, right? You see, they thought in their minds, because of the Jewish mindset, they thought that Jesus was going to Jerusalem to establish his kingship, to sit on the throne of David. And so no matter what, what Jesus had been telling them, they, they didn't hear. Of course, the response of the other disciples when they heard what, what had happened, they were furious. Because you see, each of them probably wanted to be VIPs in the cabinet, so to speak, of Jesus Christ. And we know from the Gospels that at various times that, that uh, these 12 disciples, these apostles, argued. Um, they were all jockeying for positions of power and resented James and John. Mark 9, uh, they were having this argument. And Jesus comes up and asks what they're arguing about. And their response was, who? Who will be the greatest in the kingdom? These are Jesus Christ's 12 disciples, his 12 apostles. J.C. Ryle, a theologian from the past, says that this is a narrative, this narrative contains a bright mirror of human vanity. It shows us that zeal is often accompanied by ambition or some other vice of the flesh, so that they who follow Jesus Christ have a different object in view what they ought to have. It shows us our flesh, doesn't it? It can be embarrassing for us at times if we're honest. You know, but Jesus, he didn't rebuke James and John, and he didn't rebuke the disciples for being furious that they asked that question. Instead, he used it as an opportunity to teach, teach them about his kingdom. He says to them that his kingdom will be very different from the ones that the disciples were used to and were expecting. And he tells them first what servanthood is not. It's not what James and John and the disciples were thinking, not sitting one on the left and one on the right. He reminded them that their views of rulers had been affected by what they saw. They saw the the kings and the governors and the rulers. And he said to them that these people that they thought were great were really oppressors. They got where they were at the expense of little people, um, defenseless people, vulnerable people. He tells us that we must not be that way. He told the disciples, we must not be that way. So what is servanthood like? What does it look like? He says that whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. 
And whoever wishes to be first must be slave of all. Then he tells them, he tells us, that he set forth an example. He come to be a servant, to be a slave. And he says, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Be your servant. Be your slave. That's the last thing that they wanted to hear. And to be honest, the last thing that we. And yet, Jesus Christ says that we are to be servants. We so much want to be in charge sometimes, to be that decision maker, uh, to enjoy the perks of the office, so to speak, um, to tell others sometimes what to do and how to do it. That's the way the world says it, right? Look out for number one because no one else is looking out for you. Toot your own horn. Go for the gusto. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I think, that gives insight into this passage. Um, it unlocks, I think, uh, uh, a word picture for us, maybe. It, it's in the context of Paul um, using this very same word uh, that Jesus is using. Men ought to regard us as servants of Christ. And in the context for the Corinthians, if you remember, the Corinthians were, they were having a popularity contest between the, the, uh, the apostles. Some, if you remember, were for Paul. And others were for Apollos. Then others were for Cephas or for Peter. And then there were others, the, the very super spiritual ones, quote unquote, were for Jesus. But they were kind of, you know, comparing who was the best. Kind of like, Pastor Kerry's the best. No, no. Paulos is the best. And no down the line. And that's kind of what they were doing. And, um, and, and Paul then says to them some pretty harsh things. He says, I don't address you as spiritual, but as worldly. And then he goes on and he says, I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we've become a spectacle to the world and to the angels and to men. We've become like those who are last of all. Paul's using a, a word that suggests that what he has in mind is a picture of a returning Roman army. And, and we've, we've heard this before, that they would go off and fight these battles, and they'd come back victorious. And, and up front, of course, would be the generals and the commanders and all those who distinguished themselves in battle. And then after that, when as they go along, they'll throw these Wreaths and throw these flowers before them. Then the troops would come, the winning troops, the victorious troops. Then next would be the prisoners and the leaders of the defeated nations. They would be taunted and jeered at, and in the end would be those condemned men that were going to go into the arena to fight the gladiators, be thrown out to the beast. These men were demoralized man. They were covered with mud and filth that had been thrown at them. Um, rocks were thrown at them, so they were bleeding probably. Um, 
They were torn by savage dogs that were, were uh, pushed on them. They were dis- despised. And Paul is saying, that's us. That's, that's us. Do you see then what Jesus is saying to James and John? <laughs> he says in verse 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. And he probably was alluding to Isaiah 53, that passage we know so well about Jesus Christ, where it says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for iniquities. The chastisement due to our peace was laid upon him. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Think about that and you compare our society today, our culture today. Is there ever in history a time where we're more concerned about honor and prestige and importance? Um, Jesus is always saying, not about that. Jesus is talking about discipleship. And it's the shape. He says, you want to be my disciple? You must deny yourself. You must take the cross. Follow Jesus. And this is wisdom that the world despises. The world despises it. When chapter 12 of the book of Acts, we see what happened to James and to John. Um, 12th chapter of Acts, um, King Herod had James killed with a sword. And tradition says that two men held him down and a third one took a sword and pushed it into his stomach, killing him. John, of course, suffered um, also. He was whipped by the Sanhedrin and he was banished to the island of Patmos. Kind of a sobering passage, isn't it? Calls us to ask some very serious questions this time in our lives. Do I want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Do you? Do you want to measure greatness according to the kingdom of God? We must be willing to go down, go down on our knees and, and to follow Jesus in however he calls us and however he leads us. Years ago, a college president named William Banowski interviewed Hugh Hefner. Of course, Hefner was the founder of Playboy magazine. And um, he explained, um, Hefner did to this president, this um, Playboy philosophy is this. We reject any philosophy which holds that a man must deny himself anything. We, I'm reading one more time, we reject any philosophy which holds that a man must deny himself anything. So when Bonoski uh, wrote his interview, he added these comments. He said, Hugh Hefner tells us to get all we can get. Jesus tells us to give all we can give. No way to gloss over those differences, are there? The popular philosophy today teaches us to get life, just grab it. Jesus taught that to win, we must surrender. The world tells us one thing. 
Jesus tells another. The question is, whom will you believe? Whom will I believe? It's a decision we have to make. Jesus, Son of God, came from heaven, came as a baby into this world filled with poverty. He was born in a manger. He didn't come into a royal home so he could be respected. He wasn't born in Caesar's household so that he might follow father into the throne. His station in life was that of a servant. He came, he gave up his exercise of his rights as a son of God. He came in the world to serve. The real test for you and for me today is we mature and try and seek to become that that man or woman, child that God wants us to be is how we act when someone treats us like a slave or when someone treats us like a servant. Seeking to, to develop a servant's heart, we as Christians, we face so much opposition, don't we? Even in the midst of this Advent season, as we try to focus on Jesus Christ, there's so many things that, that, that have been thrown at us. And the world is always pushing stuff at us. And of course, our flesh, as I mentioned earlier, our flesh doesn't get any better. It doesn't get any better the, the, the years that we live in Christ. I still remember coming to Christ, and I, would, I went to, to Southeastern Bible College, and the president was an older guy, and he was just such a godly man. And, and, and I, as a new believer, about a year old in Christ, I used to think, one day, I'll be able to be like him, and I won't struggle with sin like I do now. You know what? I struggle. I'll struggle. Because the flesh doesn't get any better. So we have the world and we have the flesh. We have Satan. Satan, of course, loves to lie to us. Get us all these lies. And always the world, the flesh, Satan, they're promoting that we have selfish concerns, that we are worried about our significance. We, we, in the midst of serving, sometimes our hearts can be wrong, even in seeking to do ministry. People often serve for need for approval or for significance. Sometimes our preoccupation with significance robs us that ability to serve. Today in our culture, it's, it seems like that sometimes our culture is more concerned that, that children feel good about themselves than learning their ABCs. Now, I've got a lot of teachers here, my wife being one, but, but the truth is that sometimes our kids are, are, are so overprotected. I still remember when my son Zach and Jared, they're 25 and 39, but when they were young, probably five, six, seven, eight, nine. They're part of the AYSO uh, Soccer League. And I remember being shocked because I grew up, you know, playing football and, and, and you know, it's like the best people played. You know, the best people, when it, when it came time for the game to start, the best ones started. But the league was like, oh, no. Everybody No awards are given out for the best wherever. We can't do that. It would hurt somebody. 
We see it today on college campuses. I remember riding by DePaul University, and I asked Zach and Jared when they were there, I said, what are these blue lights? Blue lights. Oh, they're safe zones. They're safe zones for people who have someone who disagrees with their perspective on life, and they can go in and they can color in coloring books. These are university students. They can go in and color coloring books. Well, they can go sometimes and pet little animals. Because somebody disagrees with them. See, this mindset produces a selfishness. And I see, and and maybe this is just my opinion, but I I see abnormal behavior resulting from that. I could be wrong. I was wrong once or twice before, right, Josie? Yeah, yeah. Once or twice. But you see, this produces selfishness. God calls us to serve. If we're honest, our flesh sometimes causes us to want to serve so that we can get praise. Carlos, you did a great job. Not that Carlos was that. But, you know, we, we like that pat on back. Ralph, you did a great job. But that's wrong. That's a wrong reason to serve. Sometimes we serve to have power. Sometimes we serve just to be accepted because we grew up with our acceptance. We must continually, we must continually, I must continually check my motivation for all that I do. We can fool ourselves. We can be involved in quote-unquote service while seeking to, to satisfy our needs for acceptance or feelings of significance or to control or to get praise, or to have prestige. It's easy. It's easy to serve for the wrong reason. We can serve who we feel important, rather than because we love people, we love the Lord. Because we, the body of Christ, if, if what happens, what are the consequences for us as a congregation if we lack that servanthood. I think first thing is, well, the opposite of a servant's heart is self-seeking, right? And that leads to what? Jealousy, envy, disunity, division. We saw this with the disciples, right? We saw it. It can happen right here. If we're honest, sometimes it happens right here. We need to be praying that God will always be working in our hearts and our lives, that in the midst of our own flesh, in the midst of the world, and in the midst of Satan, that he bring unity to the body of Christ. We need it. The disciples, the twelve, that were closest to Jesus, they struggled. If they struggled, we struggle. Let's be honest. Leonard Bernstein, that, that celebrated orchestra leader from the past, was once asked, what's the hardest instrument to play? And without a, a second passing by, he said, second fiddle? Second fiddle? He says, I, I can always get a lot of first violinists, 
But to find one who plays second violin with such enthusiasm and passion, or a second French horn, or a second flute, now that, that, that's a problem. And then he said this, and yet, if no one plays second, we have no harmony. If no one plays second, we have no harmony. In the midst of life, in the midst of this world, there's this idea that we've got to be on top. <laughs> Those of you who've been around a while, you know that, that I was associate pastor at Good News for about 20 years at least. And, 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 and I remember over and over people coming to me saying, uh, Pastor Ralph, when are you going to um, start your own church? When, you need to move on and you need to get a church. And I would say, I'm fine about where I am. I'm, I'm, I'm serving. We see the mindset. Mindset is, is you've got to be the lead pastor. You've got to be the senior pastor. And that's the mindset that we have in every area of life. And sometimes we don't recognize it. We see God has gifted each of us in different ways. We need that first fiddle. We need a second fiddle. And without it, we will not have harmony. Well, second consequences of the lack of Servanthood, failure to get involved in ministry. The absence of a servant's heart causes people to simply sit back. You see, God's Word says that we are the ministers. It's the body of Christ. We're to minister. And He's given us different gifts. He's given us different abilities and talents. And he calls us to serve. And I want to encourage you today, if you're not serving, then you're, you're missing the boat. God's called us. He's given us gifts. Do you know Jesus Christ? He's given you a gift. And today, He's calling on you to use your gift. It's like a body. Think about a body. And if you're the leg, and you're not serving, it causes major problems, Right? We can move on, but we're going to be limping. I encourage you today to not allow that, that mentality to affect you. Well, the third, the third consequence is of a lack of servanthood. The absence of a servant's heart leads to playing power games. Maybe to be that spiritual king of the mountain. You guys ever played the, the king of the mountain? Where I know we guys have even on... on uh, the lake would try to cut off the person and be on top. That's not what God called us to do. He's called us to serve one another. And when we think we've got to be on top, it leads to bitterness and to contention and to division in the body of Christ. Do you see how Satan uses that? Jesus' style of ministry is opposite of the world. Christian love means we're to put the other person first, regardless of what it costs us. Even, even, even if it means that we're to play second fiddle 
second fiddle. Are you willing today to be second fiddle? Or would, you, would God possibly call you to be the third fiddle? Are you willing to serve God? Are you willing to be that man, that woman that God has gifted and has given talents to for the body of Christ? Get good news. And I, I'm not going to go through all the things, but we need an army. We need an army of servants who volunteer. We need small group leaders. We need ushers. We need media ministries upstairs to do the AV work. We need people doing evangelism. We need people, I would love to see people, so many people that we can have someone in the parking lot who greets and points them over. And then we have the ushers who come in. We need people over at Chase School volunteering. We need people to help out with Awana and God's Kids Ministries and Women's Ministries, Men's Ministries. We need people to help out with worship, music, nursery, and high school ministry. It needs to be started. We need volunteers. We need people that are willing to serve. Without humility, we won't serve. Or we serve for the wrong reason. You know, it's, it's the work of God in everything that makes good things in Christianity possible. It's God working in our lives in the midst of everything. Think about it. Faith. Would any one of us today be depending on Christ as needy, weak, sinful persons if God hadn't humbled us? He, he sure broke me. I came to Christ because I hit bottom. I hit rock bottom. You see, I came to faith in Christ because he said, Ralph, you're in the wrong direction, buddy. He did lovingly. Worship. Would any one of us today make much of the value of God instead of craving to be made much of of ourselves except for God humbling us? Would anyone seek the good of others at the cost of himself, except for God humbling us. I could go on down the line. It goes on and on. Every good thing, every good thing that comes within our lives is because God working in our lives. We're in the midst of this Advent season when we look toward the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's hard to believe that Tuesday, and we're talking about giving gifts on Christmas. I, I want to challenge you. I want you, during this Christmas season, I want you to give yourself away. I want you to give yourself away. And i got some, some ideas. You know, we've been talking about um, gifting within our family, and you know, Jared left yesterday to get some gifts, and, and he, he called back and said, um, what size... Dad, what were your pants size and what, you know, and, you know, and, and I've heard Chris sometimes and, and she'll say, well, Ralph, you know, I, I go and I look and all these dresses and all these things, they're, they're for young people. It's not who I am. Well, the great thing about giving yourself, there's no problem with size. There's no, it fits all shapes. In, in all ages, in all personalities, 
The ideal gift this Christmas is yourself. Give yourself away. I got a few ideas for how you can do that, okay? First, some of you, give an hour of your time to someone who needs you. Give an hour of your time. Write a note of encouragement to someone who's down. Can I be honest with you? At my house, at my desk, I got a big, thick folder of cards and notes from people who have written notes to me to encourage me. And sometimes I like to go and pull that stack of cards out and read them because I need encouraged. We all need encouraged at different times in our lives. Write a note. It won't take very long. Write a note. Tell someone you love them and you appreciate them and that they impact your life. Or, you know what, and we're good at this. Give somebody a hug of affirmation. Huh? Amen. Yes. Give a visit of mercy to someone, someone who maybe is, is um, laid aside, who's sick and who can't get out. And we do this well. Give a meal that you've prepared for someone who's sick. A couple more. Give a word of compassion to someone who just lost someone. You know somebody who lost a loved one? When we lose someone that we love, we need that. Finally, give a deed of kindness to, to someone who's been overlooked. All around us, there are people, some people just by nature, their personality, they, you know, people all over them and hugging them and, and recognizing them. But there's some very special people who they don't get that. And I encourage you to give a deed of kindness. It's Christmas season. It's, 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 it's the season of giving. Give yourself away. Give yourself away. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this powerful passage. Father, we see ourselves in it so much. Father, as I said earlier, we're so aware that our, our flesh doesn't get any better with education. Our flesh doesn't get any better with, 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 with continuing walking in our faith. And, and Satan doesn't quit. And the world bombards us. Father, we're just like James and John. Father, we ask that you enable us by your grace, Lord, to be servants. Father, to serve each other, to serve the body of Christ here in various ministries. We cry out to you, God. No, Father, I pray that during this time, Lord, that, that we will. Do some of those things that list, Lord, that we'll reach out and give ourselves away. We thank you and we praise you, Father, that you loved us enough in your Son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross to be a ransom for many. Pray this in Jesus Christ's name.